ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. More than 5 million Australians can, for the first time, find out just how big the gap is between what men and women are paid at their workplace. This week, the Workplace Gender Equality Agency shone a spotlight on the reality of the gender pay gap in Australia. It's been done in the hope that by naming companies with significant gender pay gaps, there'll be more of an incentive to address the issue. But seeing as the report only looks at companies with 100 or more employees, there are some doubts as to whether it will benefit many women in the regions. Being in the region, uh, we don't have quite so many businesses with 100 or more employees. We've got a lot of small business, so it's not going to capture what's happening on the ground so readily. Shortly, we'll take a look at what this new pay reporting means for women across regional Australia. I'm Alex Simon, and this is Australia Wide, coming to you from Wadjuk Country, Perth. But we start today in Lismore on the New South Wales north coast where today is a tough day for many people. It marks two years since the first of two catastrophic floods hit the region in 2022. Thousands of people have had their lives turned upside down and many lost everything. And now the buyback scheme and the new construction projects and recovery efforts are changing the landscape. But while the streets across Lismore change after the catastrophic floods, those residents who remain want the city to keep its vibrant heart. Emma Rennie has this report. John Vincent and his partner Georgina sometimes feel as though they live on a ghost street. Nearly two metres of water swept through the couple's historic timber home in 2022 when Lismore was shattered by record-breaking floods. But they picked up the pieces and are determined to stay. It's a fantastic community. Uh, it's a really great mix of people. Our next-door neighbours are amazingly beautiful people. Uh, and after the floods, people helped us so much. But many of the houses on their street have been left vacant. A government-funded buyback scheme is helping people in the highest-risk flood-damaged properties to escape the floodplain. And those left behind are feeling the loss. So the street feels different. It feels quiet. Uh, it feels less safe because there's uh, not as many people living in the houses. The thought of vacant blocks is distressing because yeah, you've lost um, the fabric of the neighbourhood completely. So where there were families, you've got nothing. The idea of the buybacks is to ensure people aren't at risk during future floods. But John would rather see the risks managed to keep people in the community. If there are vacant blocks, what I really would like is for them to get redeveloped with flood appropriate housing. Um, and keep the population centre in Lismore. And I think that'll provide a viable city centre and a viable industry, a viable university, viable schools. More than 3,500 properties were left uninhabitable across the Northern Rivers after the flood. Around 1,100 of those are expected to receive a buyback and offers have been made to more than 700 properties so far. In Lismore, the scheme has hollowed out several streets, leaving behind rows of shabby, boarded-up houses awaiting demolition or relocation. So this is a monthly street press for Lismore called 2480. It's all about anything to do with Lismore as far as art and music and... In North Lismore, Chris Lego's house is filled with an eclectic mix of books, music and artwork. 
He rents it from a friend and the property is set to receive a buyback. However, the scheme does allow timber houses to be relocated to higher ground or, in some cases, for suitable houses to be given to others. Chris's landlord wants to give him the house, but there are still hurdles to jump through. Being gifted a house in this day and age is quite amazing and it's a beautiful house made out of uh, red cedar, like old rainforest timber that you can't find anymore. I find myself in this strange position of being gifted a, a giant house, but now I've got to figure out how to move it and where to move it to. Earlier in February, the New South Wales government announced plans for more than 400 new dwellings to the east of town, including land for houses to be relocated. But the sites won't be available until 2026. In the meantime, Chris has turned to his art and his community. The art community in Lismore is amazing. It's vibrant and dynamic. It's resourceful, creative, supportive. It's one of the reasons I decided to stay, was the amazing community. As well as being a service hub for the Northern Rivers, Lismore has long been known as a colourful and vibrant city. Murals adorn its alleys and shop fronts, and buskers line the street. But residents and organisations alike are wondering how to ensure it keeps thriving for decades to come. I do think that... Lismore could do with a lot more clarity as far as its future and what's going to happen to these boarded up buyback houses, what other solutions are there for the housing crisis in Lismore, what can be done to encourage and support more small creative businesses to start up to put Lismore back on the map. Lismore City Council is looking to answer some of those questions. Head of Investment and Growth, Catherine O'Regan, says the council is undertaking community consultation to create a master plan for the Shire. Yeah, this is a time to really reimagine things. Don't do it the same. And I think that's what the appetite of the community is telling us. One thing we don't want is this to sit on the shelf. It can't. And one of our goals is to make sure that everything is actually deliverable and it's going to need not just council to fund, but state, federal, private actors to fund. Consultation will continue for some months yet, with a final report expected later this year. But the council is not the only organisation looking to the future. You might, for some questions, you might have just one thing. For others, you might have five or six. Academics with expertise in disaster recovery have created the Living Lab Northern Rivers to discuss and consult the community about their ideas for the future. It recently held a series of workshops with residents and academic director Elizabeth Mossop says one of the big questions many people raised was what should be done with vacant buyback properties and the land left behind. People are talking about regenerative agriculture, so all different kinds of uh, crop production or intensive horticulture. People are talking about orchards, people are talking about urban forestry, they're talking about recreation, bike trails, pedestrian trails, um, areas for water storage and flood mitigation, focus on biodiversity. So a really broad range of really interesting and constructive propositions. 
The ideas will be put to technical experts in the coming weeks for further design and development. Then the lab will take its work to the council and other government agencies involved with the flood recovery. Engagement Director Dan Etheridge, who's also a Lismore resident, says there's still a lot of trauma and frustration among Lismore residents, but there's also a lot of love for this flood-prone city. I haven't met anyone yet who hasn't thought about ways they could improve Lismore, and none of those people have wanted to throw the old Lismore out in making the new one. So yeah, I am extremely impressed with and proud of my community here that People have done a lot of really creative thinking, a lot of hard work, and are coming with really reasonable but ambitious ideas for this place, and it's really based on how much they love it here now. That's Dan Etheridge from Living Lab Northern Rivers, ending that story from Emma Rennie. You're listening to ABC Australia Wide. And you are with me, Alex Hyman, in for Sinead Mangan. It's great to have your company. Women from regional Victoria fear they may not benefit from new reporting that lays bare the gender pay gap at Australian businesses. The Workplace Gender Equality Agency has published data on the pay gap for private businesses with more than 100 employees. It reveals the difference between the average pay for men and women in Australia, including massive gender pay gaps at some of the country's most well-known businesses. But for women living regionally, they fear the landmark new reporting won't benefit them as much as their city-dwelling peers. Jean Bell from South West Victoria has this story. Karen Foster is a businesswoman hailing from Port Ferry in South West Victoria. She thinks public reporting of gender pay gaps is a step in the right direction, but she worries women in the regions could miss out because there's fewer businesses with 100 or more employees that must publicly report their pay gap. Being in the region, uh, we don't have quite so many businesses with 100 or more employees. We've got a lot of small business, so it's not going to capture what's happening on the ground so readily, but it will provide some important data sets for us. Australian government data from 2022 shows nearly 300 organisations in regional Victoria have more than 100 employees, while just over 200,000 businesses have between 1 and 99 employees and won't have to report their pay gap. Wajia did consider requiring smaller businesses to report their pay gaps, according to a 2021 report, but this was not pursued due to the burden this would place on businesses, particularly following the COVID-19 pandemic. Industry segregation, where men tend to work in higher paying industries while women make up the majority of workers in lower paying fields, is a big part of the gender pay gap. Australian Gender Equality Council Chairperson Coral Ross says industry segregation accounted for between 30 and 40% of the gender pay gap. Women make up 79% of healthcare and social assistance workers, so the people that work in aged care and the health industry, 79% of them are women. Whereas in mining, 80% of the mining industry is men, but we pay more in mining than we do in healthcare and aged care. Coral Ross says public reporting will improve transparency around pay and salaries and encourage employers to understand the driving forces behind their gender pay gap. Warnable-based Annette Cannon from Business and Professional Women Southwest says lower salaries were just one part of the puzzle. Women tend to fulfil the traditional carer role, raising children or looking after a family member. 
women are still falling into that and losing out on things like superannuation when they're on parental leave or working part-time um, because they're caring for family members. Annette Cannon believes men are encouraged to confidently negotiate pay, while women are not always as assertive when negotiating salary or other benefits, such as a work car. Still those cultural problems where, you know, we need mums and dads to be teaching their, their girls that that's, it's not aggressive to ask for what you're worth. It's not demanding to, you know, expect more. Mary Waldridge, the chief executive of Wajia, said in a statement publishing pay gaps would hold employers accountable for not only their current performance, but also the action and commitments each organisation made in response to their pay gap. A reporter in southwest Victoria, Jean Bell, with that story. This week is the first official week of lectures and tutorials for thousands of students starting at university for the first time. And for many regional kids, it's the start of a whole new life as they settle into living away from home. But with rents at record highs in many cities, the cost for country students to follow their dreams and go to university has never been higher. Victor Harbour-based reporter Carolyn Horne took a look at the options for regional students relocating to Adelaide for study. University life can be fun and also a little daunting especially when it means moving out of home and away from your family and mates for the first time and being thrown in the deep end of navigating being an adult, juggling study, work, even sport, and just having a chance to enjoy yourself. Across Australia, people outside of metropolitan areas are less than half as likely to gain a bachelor's degree and above qualification by the time they're 35 years old, with the cost of having to relocate for university identified as a significant barrier. So just how much do students pay to live in Adelaide while they study for their degrees? Ethan Shee is in his third year of a law degree with Adelaide University. When he first started studying, he moved into Lincoln College, a not-for-profit student accommodation facility in North Adelaide. It's about 500 a week, and that includes meals, all the amenities, even cleaning of your rooms. So yeah, it's just a great way to sort of transition out of home before you have to start cooking for yourself. And where are you living now? Uh, now I'm at Uni Lodge in the city. So how is that different to something like Lincoln College? You have a lot more independence, um, a lot more freedom. Uh, you have to cook for yourself, clean for yourself. Normally it would be 449 a week to live in a studio for six months. And is that all, that's your rent and all your bills? Yeah, rent and bills, yeah. But you've got to do your own food? Yeah, and own food and cleaning and washing, yeah. Ethan still has a few years to go, but he intends to return to the country once he finishes studying. I'm pretty interested in criminal law. I enjoyed doing that but then I was thinking of also maybe doing something with the land council up in Alice Springs maybe. I've always sort of wanted to move back there because I like the area and I thought that'd be something nice I could do. Charlize Fleet from Renmark completed year 12 last year. She's just had her first taste of university life. She's experienced O-Week and moving into student accommodation on the Bedford Park campus at Flinders University. And so far, she's been really impressed with the efforts the university has gone to to help regional students socialise and settle in as they get used to living together and away from family and old friends. It costs around 800 per fortnight, but I think that's pretty good compared to some other places I looked at. So it covers all our washing, covers our food, our meals. How's the food so far? The food is really good. I'm surprised. I mean, I thought I would miss my mum's cooking, but <laughs> the food is actually very good. After she graduates in five years, 
Charlize intends to develop her love of international law and go into diplomacy. I'd love to hopefully end up representing Australia overseas, hopefully in an embassy, but we'll see what happens. <laughs> I love the Riverland, it's so great, but this is a very different step from the Riverland, but at the same time, to be able to do what I want to do in the future, I have to be willing to move and to, you know, experience uni life. Kiana Garland started studying a Bachelor of Animal Behaviour at Flinders University last year. She's intending to work in research around the conservation of endangered species. She moved from High Marsh Island to start her studies and she's currently couch surfing while waiting to hear if an application for a room in a shared student house is successful. This week I've just found there's this one place run through student rooms, I believe, and it's like all around share housing for students. Hopefully this comes through for me, but like, yeah, so they're doing like a lease transfer and by doing it through the student rooms, it takes out the risk of like the other housemates. So you move in and then like you just share with whoever's in there at the time and then people would yeah. like move in and move out as they need to. Yeah. So the one I'm looking at now currently has like four others there. So it's one ninety a week and then I do power bills on top of that every three months. Wendy Mason is the CEO of the Country Education Foundation of Australia. They're a collection of 40 branches across the country, including six here in South Australia, mainly in the Barossa and at Port Lincoln and Kimber. They give out grants and scholarships from the proceeds of local fundraisers to students from their area to try and level the playing field, at least a little, of the cost of going to university for regional students. Most of our students don't have family support. So it, it's quite phenomenal when you think about them leaving home. They've got perhaps emotional support, but the ability to, to lean on mum and dad or family for financial support is the point. It's really quite brave and quite amazing when they do that. So if we can support more young people to be doing that with the view that they will return, I think it's a pretty powerful proposition. In South Australia, we, we last year supported 53 students to attend universities in Adelaide. So of those 53, 33 students were studying in a health-related field, many of them doing nursing, midwifery, other uh, health-related disciplines, but ones where there is really a need to have a practical component, studying remotely is not an option. So they need to they need to leave their home community. They need to be able to then find the money to be able to live in a capital city so they don't have the living at home support from mum and dad that perhaps one of their metropolitan peers might enjoy. You'd think the benefit would be that a lot of those kids, or at least some of them, would, after they qualify, they'll go back to country areas and fill some of those, you know, <laughs> gaps that we've got. Absolutely. So we know that 79% of the students that we have needed to leave home to access their education or employment, but 75% of them, when we're asked if they'd like to return to a regional or rural area, say absolutely yes. So, so to be able to educate and help young people to get some skills and return to that regional or rural setting is really important. That story from our reporter in Victor Harbour, Carolyn Horn. ABC Australia Wide. And finally here on Australia Wide, there's no question that music is a powerful force. It can make you dance or cry or sing or even move to the other side of the world. 
As a young girl, French classical guitarist Ingrid Riolet dreamed of one day playing a guitar made by renowned Australian luthier Greg Smallman. So she packed up her life in Europe and travelled all the way to WA's remote south coast. But when she arrived at Greg's Esperance workshop in 2015, she got much more than she bargained for. Our reporter Hayden Smith met up with Ingrid to hear her story. this guitar is part of me, you know. Uh, it's so sensitive that you can really express your emotions through the music. The south coast of Western Australia is a long way from the French village where Ingrid Riolo first fell in love with classical guitars. But at age 11, she watched a video of renowned Australian guitar maker Greg Smallman at work. So began a dream to one day own one of his designs. And since this day, I always dreamt to have this kind of guitar because it's a different guitar. We were more used to have traditional guitar. That was a kind of a revolution and, and that was my dream guitar. But people say that you had to be famous and that it was costing a lot of money. So I did everything to be a good guitarist. Finally, in 2015, she travelled to Greg's workshop just outside Esperance. My first impression that uh, it was another world for me. It was something at first very far away from France. It's uh, about 24 hours of uh, yeah, travel and very different and very relaxing. Not so many people uh, that I was used in Europe. And the Smallman guitar certainly lived up to her expectations. And so the first time I played this guitar, um, that was kind of uh, like, you know, like you have this kind of piano, it's a study piano, it's a straight piano, we call it, and that you suddenly uh, play on a concert piano, a grand piano. That's something that, uh, wow, that's something in the sound, in the touch. It's an instrument very sensitive. Uh, it allows me to be very musical with that and to respond exactly to what I want to. And you have a lot of contrast, change colours, and you can achieve very um, things that you are more limited on other kind of guitars. So, yes, that was um, very special and I really fell in love with, uh, with this guitar. <laughs> but she was also introduced to Greg's son and fellow luthier, Damon. So when I arrived, in fact, I never thought and realised that in the label inside the guitar, you have written uh, Greg Smallman and Sons, Damon and Kim. For me, it was just Greg Smallman. So when I arrived here and I saw these two guys with Greg, I was thinking, ah, oh, I did not know he had workers with him. And then yeah, he introduced me and he says, this is Damon, Kim, my sons. The pair stayed in touch, fell in love, and are now happily married, living together in Esperance. The love story can be traced back to the early 1970s, when Damon's father started making guitars. He was studying to be a woodwork teacher at the uh, University of Newcastle, and he got a bit uh, bored with making boxes. So he got a book, uh, How to Make a Spanish Guitar, and he made two guitars on the floor of his kitchen, and he thought they sounded pretty similar to a lot of other guitars around. But nobody was impressed because he didn't go to Spain to learn how to make from anyone. He just figured it out by himself. He thought, well, how do I get into this and sell these? I'm going to have to do something really different. So he did, and it worked. Greg Smallman is perhaps best known for pioneering the lattice bracing system, a move described by some experts as revolutionary for the internal architecture of classical guitars. So he just made all this part 
more efficient. And then in order to hold it together under the load of the strings, he had to put a different bracing system. So he's most famously known for the lattice bracing system. But the innovation and the key idea is that this part of the guitar is lighter. Now, Greg Smallman, along with his sons, Damon and Kim, produce about 15 to 20 guitars every year. They are widely seen as some of the best makers of classical guitars in the world. The main difference between these ones and what most other people are doing at the moment is the amount of time we spend altering and fine-tuning how the guitar works and sounds after it's finished. So after the strings are put on, we keep it for 12 to 14 months and make small adjustments every day and play them every day. For Damon, the hard work is even more rewarding. I usually travel with Ingrid and that's an amazing experience to be involved at the sort of grassroots level of what she does every day. That's job satisfaction for me because usually we finish the guitar and it goes in a box and off it goes and that's it. So being able to travel with Ingrid and see the sound checks and get into live sound and recording and everything is a whole new world and it's really, really amazing. Reporter Hayden Smith with that story from Esperance on the south coast of WA. And that is Australia-wide for this Wednesday. I'm Alex Hyman. I'll be back again with you tomorrow. Hope you can join me then. Have a wonderful evening. Cheerio. ABC Listen.